welcome to Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing and community, brought to you by The Resort, an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. In this episode of the podcast, I get to talk with the amazing Jennifer Baker. Meeting more people from more perspectives, you understand how limited your viewpoint is. And I say this for everybody, because I really do feel like we're all limited in our viewpoints, whether you want to admit it or not. Jen is a publishing professional with 20 years of experience in a range of roles. And she's also an instructor for Bay Path University's Creative Nonfiction MFA, as well as the creator and host of the podcast, Minorities in Publishing. She was recently a contributing editor to Electric Literature and is currently a senior editor at Amistad Books. From 2014 to 2017, Jen was a panel organizer and social media manager for We Need Diverse Books, a nonprofit organization that sprang to life from the hashtag We Need Diverse Books media campaign to increase minority representation in literature. In 2019, Jen was named a Publishers Weekly Starwatch Superstar. Jen and I had such a great conversation about the many roles she's held in the publishing world and the genesis of her podcast, Minorities in Publishing, as well as its accompanying newsletter. I can't wait for you to listen to this incredibly informative and awesome conversation with Jen Baker. As we get started, I just want to say thank you to Jen for being here with us today. And I would love to ask you, Jen, if you could just introduce yourself briefly, who you are, where you live, what the contours of your life are like, even outside of your writing and editing, just to to get us situated about who you are in the world. And thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm following a stellar roster of people on the podcast so far, so I feel very honored to be part of that group. So you are also I'm... stellar. <laughs> <laughs> Grazie. I am born and raised in New York City, partially uh, Long Island for the first eight years, and then transient being of Queens for the next 30 semi years. I've lived a lot of places in Queens, and I'm Still in Queens. So (laughs) Um, I work in publishing. I've worked in publishing for, it'll be 20 years next year, two years. And I'm currently a senior editor, uh, acquisitions editor. There may be a lot of editor titles within publishing, but I acquire books for Amistad, which is a legacy black press and is part of HarperCollins, which people may, if you've heard the term big five, that's like big five publishers and HarperCollins is one of them with. Penguin Random House, Hachette, McMillan, and Simon & Schuster. Um, I'm also the creator host of the Minorities in Publishing podcast, which is, as of this month, hit its seven years. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. I know. I I didn't think it would happen this long myself, but here we are. (laughs) And so, and just trying to stay sane and safe in a pandemic. So learning how to swim at age 40, um, getting back into roller skating, though one of my, the wheels of my skates fell off this morning. While you were skating? Luckily, I just do it in a playground, like a handball court based basketball court near my apartment. 
Um, so yeah, it won. I was like, something's off. Like, I guess I'm just bad today. <laughs> and it turned out like, nope, one of these wheels was like wiggly, wobbly, wiggly, wobbly. And then at some point I just skated and I was like, oh, something's wrong with that wheel. And then whoop, came off. And so I had to step very gingerly to the bench where my shoes were. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad that you were close to home and that you were not going at some high speed that made such uh, a situation yeah. dangerous for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to a roller disco <gasps> next Friday. So I'm like, I'm I'm not happy this happened, but I'm very glad this happened before I was on that roller disco rink. <laughs> for sure. Um, and that sounds how fun. many people? <laughs> oh my goodness, a roller disco. Have you done a roller disco before? I've never done a roller disco, which is why I'm like, I need to get this skate fixed ASAP because mm. I'm not not going to a roller freaking disco. We planned this for like two months. That's right. So, of course, it would happen like <laughs> <laughs> the week before. I'd be like, oh, you don't need four, eight skates or eight wheels. Why would you need that? Uh-huh. Wow. So, so yeah. Um... Yeah. Motivation. You have motivation to get it fixed. Proper motivation is so key in so many parts of our lives, even when we're working on long writing projects, I might say. Indeed. (laughs) So you mentioned that you've been working in publishing now for 20 years and that you are at a division of one of the uh, what have what have been referred to as the big five publishers. Have you always worked with big publishing houses? Have can you talk a little bit about where you are now being different than where you've been in the past or similar to where you've been in the past? I did a lot of academic for my full-time job. Um, Academic in some ways is a bit easier to get into or was when I did this 20 some odd years ago. And so I found that I went on a lot of interviews, but I was just not getting editorial assistant jobs in the trade space because you have to write copy. Uh, That was one of the tests they gave was writing copy. So you had to read a book and then write copy for it. And I was just really bad at that. Uh, I don't know if I'm really great at it now, but (laughs) not that I'm actually acquiring books, but uh, I was really not good at it then at all. Um, So I admit that. And so with academic, it's really based on the interaction Hmm. solely. You know, you didn't really have to take a test on top of that. Uh, And so it, was a bit easier. I still went on a lot of interviews right out of undergrad, but I was able to get a position pretty quickly. Mm. And funny enough, I was at the academic part of Macmillan. That was where I started. And then I went to other academic spaces, Pearson Education. Uh, Pearson and Penguin used to be owned by the same company. So if you worked for Pearson, you could get Penguin books for a deep discount and stuff like that. You had access to the people on staff at Penguin. And then at some point, uh, before the recession, mm-hmm. the 2008 recession, um, they had split off. And I guess that's when Bertelsmann bought Penguin. I'm not sure who bought who. Everyone's buying something at some point. Oh, my point. goodness. I, I think it's one company now. Yeah, it's, it's a little <laughs> ridiculous. So, and then, and then I just went to other publishers, and then I worked at a very small university press. I worked at Cambridge University Press, which is actually very okay. big. Um, worked for Springer, which is actually pretty big, and someone bought them while out before I got there. And so I just also people should understand that like this buying, this, you know, conglomerization isn't just trade. It happens in academic. It happens everywhere. Right. But it's it's just mm-hmm. happening in publishing, which is a shame. Um, right. I know that's not what we're going to talk about. But yeah. So yes and no. <laughs> well, no, but it's really interesting to, to hear about because you have worked in all these different places. And it's also interesting to hear this trajectory. Um, I always love hearing about 
the different ways that people have ended up in the mm -hmm. publishing jobs they're now in because there are many different entry points and yeah. some that are more difficult for others for various yeah. reasons. Yeah. As for, uh, it's interesting, it wasn't until I won Publishers Weekly Star Watch in 2019 of Veronica Liu, who mm -hmm. is a co-owner of Word Up Uptown, Uptown Manhattan, um, so Washington Heights, uh, that indie bookstore, which is a great indie bookstore everyone should go to, buy from. They do so much community-oriented ev events. Um, they're really wonderful there. She had nominated me for Publishers Weekly Star Watch, and I won it. Um, and then I got a, I was in all the public, Publishers Weekly is like the big trade right. magazine. So if you're in the industry, you know, you're in certain industries, you read certain periodicals to keep updated. And Publishers Weekly is what everyone in publishing reads. And at the time, I was a production editor. And my former boss, because I left Penguin Random House last early this year, uh, found me through that. So she, I had been trying to get, not necessarily out of academic, I just wanted, hated my job. And I was at a very small university press and it was a very toxic environment. Um, and I got a call uh, from Penguin Random House saying, do you want to apply for this mm -hmm. position? And I said, yeah, but I've applied to stuff all the time. <laughs> you never responded to me. Right. But the minute the hiring <laughs> manager was like, reach out to that person, we want her. Because it said I was a production editor in the when they did the interviews and they get, we all get access to Publishers Weekly and Publishers Lunch at certain spaces, um, at per certain levels in your job. Mm -hmm. So that is just kind of to say, and I got there because of the podcast and right. community building, which I know we're going to talk to. So essentially my community building through the podcast led Veronica to nominate me, led me to get another job. And then everything that happened last year transpired and I got my current job, but I got my current job because of my skills, but also my current boss wasn't guest on the podcast. There you go. <laughs> and she <laughs> wanted me to be able to join Amistad and it hadn't worked out earlier. And then she had buy-in uh, from the larger company to expand her staff. And so both positions were ones that came through uh, just doing the podcast work and but I mean, it's not just, I don't want to minimize it. Like I did a podcast and that's how you get a job. Like, no. <laughs> right. Well, you did a podcast also for seven years that probably interacted with other parts of your life as well, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. It was the relationships because I maintain the relationships as best as I can with previous guests of the podcast. So anyone who gets the newsletter to uh, minorities in publishing, you will see I have a whole section for guests where I keep in touch and, and I'm just like, their new book came out. They won a contest. They're running a contest. Da, 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 da. It's like the newsletter in and of itself. It pushed job openings, grants, um, you know, contests, ways for people to make, find money, um, you know, Mm -hmm. what the episode is, uh, more resources about like, oh, I just found this really great resource about understanding uh, neurodivergent writers and being more cognizant of that as an agent or editor. Oh, I found this really great use of updated vocabulary for us to be mindful of. So it, it really is what I aim for the newsletter to be is a resource, not just new episode, check it out, bye. Mm -hmm. It's Then it's like, what is that? Yeah. Right. Right. That's why you're here. See, you're so much in tune with thinking in terms of 
community. I love it. Um, has the newsletter existed as long as the podcast? Did you start that at the same time? I did not. I should have. I really wish I had. But I started the newsletter maybe three years ago, if not less than three years. Because I was just like, you know what? I think I should do a newsletter because that seems to be the thing. And I knew immediately what that newsletter... So the newsletter has always looked the same. It wasn't like, oh, I decided to do new things as the newsletter came about. The newsletter was always meant to say, here's some job listings, here's some contests, here's some resources, here's updates on guests, uh, and all that stuff. Here's what the new episode is. Um, but those are things that, you know, you just kind of realize like, OK, this might be helpful for people. And right. and it takes a while for me to actually do the freaking newsletter, sure. <laughs> which I don't think sure. people yeah. think about is that I sit there, go through Twitter because I do it monthly. So I go through the whole Twitter feed for a month. Like, what did I post? What didn't I post? I, I Google my guests. I keep lists of what their upcoming books are. I follow them on social media. Um, you know, I try to, I find, I email myself stuff as myself stuff as soon as I see it. So I put that in the newsletter. And then now Mm -hmm. that MIP has become a one-stop shop for people, um, in HR, can you post our job? Can you post our job? Can you share our job? Can you put that? And I was like, I cannot be the only resource you have for a marginalized community. That is ridiculous. And I, again, I do it monthly. Right. I don't do it. The podcast was bi-weekly and then I just didn't have the bandwidth to continue that. Um, so, you know, it's it's nice to be a resource, but it's kind of irritating when you're seen as the only resource for entities to try and find an audience when I'm like, you don't understand my audience. My audience is also not necessarily all marginalized people. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Of course. Right. Um, so like, you know, you don't even understand the percentages of, of what that looks like or the fact that, again, I do it monthly and that could be the beginning of the month or the end of the month. It depends on what I have the time and energy to do and how I can get to it. So right. those things are, are just very interesting when you see how people don't understand the work as you know, behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. And you do the, you do the newsletter all by yourself. I do everything by myself, except for transcription. Right. The I don't yeah. do the transcription, but I hire someone to transcribe, and then I review the transcription and then put it online. Let me just take a moment here to tell everyone who is not familiar, transcription is like a thing. I've done it myself. I do it myself now. I believe in the importance of having transcriptions for accessibility, for um, audio content, and it takes a lot of time to do mm-hmm. right. And so I'm glad that you have help with that. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually least. do like transcribing stuff. I used to do it for electric literature when I would do interviews. Mm-hmm. I would, you know, it's kind of like this nice kind of mindless thing. You could just zone out. And you're just listening to people talk and you're like, yeah, no, I do. I used to do it for for stuff at electric literature, too, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah. When I would do interviews for electric literature, I would transcribe my own interviews, which is a fun way to get to know your own vocal tics yeah. um, as you listen to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I adopt mine from the guests. So it's always when I hear a guest that, you know, you know, and then I start being all, you know, you know, like, 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 and I'm like, damn it. Why do I keep doing it? <laughs> okay. Speaking of community and building off of each other's energy, Jen, I do the same thing when I'm interviewing people and start to kind of mimic their way of talking. So what is going to happen now when you and I are talking to each other? What will be the dominant and what will be the imitator? Maybe it'll go back and forth. Who knows? I, I try not to say, you know, and 
like a lot. I, I'm very kind of conscious of that. So it is funny when it happens in an interview and I'm just like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when I have a transcription of something that's especially uh, a difficult transcription of a, of a guest, for example, and there are reasons that it's difficult to transcribe because of certain things that kept getting said. And then I realize I'm also saying them and I'm like, oh, you did it to yourself, too, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, well, I love that. I loved hearing that you started the podcast Minorities in Publishing, and it was, I guess, four years of it before you started doing the newsletter. I think that's so helpful to hear um, when somebody sees someone like Jennifer Baker, who's doing all these great things and you're like oh god I want to start doing some things and working with my community but how can I do all this at once and and you slowly built it up right you didn't do it all at once it takes some time to figure out what you have the capacity for Mm -hmm. and also what's available because the technology theoretically improves over time so Mm. newsletters in 2014 I know they were a thing but they may not have looked as good as the ones now. And I'm not saying mine is super fancy. I just went with one and I said, that, that's, that'll do. <laughs> that'll do for now. That's fine. But, you know, it was, it, I just never thought of it. I was like, you know, in our community, a lot of people do their newsletters to just kind of as a journal now. Mm. Right. And I, I guess maybe I saw that as I don't have anything to sell and it's not really my thoughts. So what's the point? And then I realized, oh, this is a regular podcast. I should probably have a newsletter and and make it worthwhile for people to sign up, not just new episode. It needs to be worthwhile. Right. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about your impetus for starting the podcast in the first place and how maybe it's been different than you anticipated? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at the time, I had a podcast partner, um, Bev Rivero, who's at National Book Foundation. And she and I just thought as two women of color in the industry, not in an editorial, so I guess forward-facing capacity, because I think, again, when people think publishing, they think authors and they think editors, not so much. Again, I was a production editor and that at the time was in publicity. And those are very key roles too that aren't very visible, I feel, in terms of when people think about roles and jobs and and what it entails in total. And so we just thought in terms of the conversation, again, this was 2014. So that that May We Need Diverse Books had become a thing, right? So that's the hashtag that became a campaign that became a nonprofit and still exists today. And they do really great work. And I worked with them for the first three years, but the conversation seemed very dominant, understandably so, on authors and illustrators and specifically kid lit, because that's really what We Need Diverse Books kind of focuses on. Anyways, and we said we work in publishing and we've worked in publishing at that point a decade (laughs) each um, over a decade for me, a little over. So it was, we said, well, what they don't understand or they being like royal we, such as it were, is what happens here? What is happening internally that prohibits what is what you were seeing as a buyer, as a consumer and as an artist slash creator? And so we just said, let's have conversations with people in the industry and 
just talk about at the first initially it was about the issues of diversity, which became very boring very quickly. <laughs> like, especially for me. I mean, some people are like, we'd love for you to talk about diversity. And I said, well, it's going to cost you because I'm tired of talking about diversity. <laughs> Look, you can't. Yeah, you have to be doing something that you're interested in for a seven year length you know, of time doing something with the podcast, right? Yeah. And I think people don't want to hear about that. So it goes back to what can I, I feel like that is my modus operandi, so to speak, is what can I, what information can I provide? Because that's what is going to continually hamper us as a freaking species, is that we're not evolving because we're not learning and we're not really kind of absorb that information. And also what information just isn't available to artists for whatever reason. And I have that information, not all of it, mind you, but I have that. And so being an artist and working in the industry, there are things I understand that someone who has no no cognitive awareness of what we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis looks like. And so we are immediately villainized. And capitalism deserves to be villainized. Here, here. Corp- yeah, but corporations are made of people. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm, like, it's mm-hmm. kind of easy to be pissed at Simon & Schuster, right? It's easy to be pissed at an entity. People make up that entity. And right. so do you know the people working within it? Do you know what the barriers are? And it is not a, to excuse the problems and all the stuff. And I'd never say that I am, you know, this beacon of light. I said, I am part of the problem. (laughs) They pay my salary. And so I feel as though I have the right to demand more of my industry and of myself. But what I can offer is information. And so then it became more, we can talk about the issues of representation. We can absolutely talk about that. But I want to talk to you, publisher, about how you publish books, what you're looking for, who do you have to answer to? I want to talk to you, literary agent, about what exactly do you do? Because I think people don't understand what you do and just think you take 15% and go away. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what do you do, designer? What is, who do you have to answer to when you are trying to do a cover design? What kind of pressures are you under in terms of interior design or, or the amount of books you handle? What kind of background do you have in order to get your job? How did you get your job? How is it different from getting a job today as it was for many of us 10 plus years ago? And that gives you information. Oh, this is what a publicist does. Oh, this is what an art director does. Oh, this is a, you know upcoming episode for the seventh year anniversary. Here's an Ojibwe professor who chose to dedicate his life to educate people about indigenous cultures. Why would you choose to do that? Um, why do you think that's important? What kind of questions do you get? You know, so talking to creators, but also industry people about their lives, what do they understand? And that, again, can talk about the issues of representation and da 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 But really, I said, I, I really want people to understand what your job is and, and what that entails of, like, how do they get into the, this industry? What kind of conversations do you have? What do you enjoy about it? What frustrates you? All those things. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you. Because there are so many people who say things like, it takes a community, it takes a village to do whatever this and that, but maybe 
don't really know the nuts and bolts of what exactly that community is and who are all mm-hmm. the players there. And you've had this experience in different parts of the publishing industry enough to know that there's a lot that goes on. And I'm guessing um, that there's always so much more going on that in hosting these podcast episodes, you're able to uh, relieve some of your own curiosity because I'm sure there's still always more that you're learning as you're interviewing people. Am I right? Yeah, especially in areas that I don't work in, you know, particularly publicity, marketing, because those are areas I was never really interested in. So I didn't really invest in them, but I have to work very closely with them. In production, I didn't really. I just had to tell them when the book was going to be in the warehouse. But as an acquisitions editor now, they're my best buddies. Right, <laughs> right. So that's a very different relationship. Uh, and with design, I've always had a relationship with design. Production worked very closely with design and at editorial works very closely with design as well. But sometimes I just didn't understand the levels that they had to go through in terms of, uh, what is it, next month? is going to be Regina Flath and she's a assistant art director. And she told me about working for a major trade house trade being like a big commercial place that does fiction, nonfiction, potentially poetry. It sells you more of the entertainment books rather than the academic, just for people who don't know. And she was like, Oh yeah. So I have to go through the author, the editor, marketing, publicity, sales, Distributors, major distributors. Authors don't know that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They just think y'all are doing this and I hate it or I love, you know, and then it's, but her, she singularly has to figure out how to make all these people happy. Wow. That's a special, special person. (laughs) Yeah. And you You have to love it. You have to love, and the fact that a lot of the people, not all of them have stayed in the industry who I've interviewed, but many have, and they love it. They love what they do. And that speaks to something deeper about the importance of having specific types of people in the industry. And I don't mean demographic wise, but people do have to love this job. And I think you want to hear from people who love it, but also are open to criticizing it. Right. I mean, you've you've really created a service for the writing community in creating and and going continuing with the minorities in publishing podcast. And um, just hearing you talk, you have this approach which I I love. Of um, I have information to share. I want to share it. Like we are all in a community together. We want to share resources. We want to share information. I want to help other writers. Um, and then at the same time, and I think this happens a lot in doing that for other people, it also helped your, you, it's not why you're doing it, but you, you know, you, you put this time into this project. It, it, uh, as you mentioned earlier, played a role in your career trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just, I think, um, I think it's just a testament to how one person is helped. It really helps all of us, and sometimes in very tangible ways, like um, like in a career trajectory, and not always in tangible ways. But we are also interconnected, um, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. yeah, that's I'm just yeah. vibing off of what you said, and I, I think I think it's great. Oh yay! <laughs> <laughs> 
thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we um, as we get to the end of our time here together, uh, a question that's been on my mind, and I'd love to hear from you as we wrap up, is what do you think, because we, we didn't even get into your own life as a writer yourself, you are working on projects, you are writing as well, um, your own books, and you've also edited an anthology and um, so many roles. In fact, I think that I just need to have you back for another episode. But um, <laughs> as we move forward and you think about your own writing practice, what do you seek in community for yourself and in the coming months as you look ahead? What is important for you in community for your own writing practice? I think to get out that house. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm in a new apartment, so it is at least, okay, this is a different scenery, but at the same time, because I'm new to the apartment, new-ish to the apartment, all I see is stuff that needs to be done to make it home whereas at my previous place it was uh so dirty and cluttered well not dirty i'm not i want to spread that rumor but it was very (laughs) cluttered because i had books everywhere and then i just had papers everywhere and then you know i was in a one bedroom so i've moved to a two bedroom thankfully and so i just need to get away and and a friend has very generously just bought a house but and offered you know just say hey do you want to come to my house you can write. I said, hell yeah. Yes. (laughs) Just offered it. Didn't even, I didn't have to put out a call on Twitter or Facebook or anything. They just said, Hey, do you want to just come to my house? I, I, I don't want to be alone. And I know you got a writing to do so we can hang out and then write. And I said, this is the best. Yes. I will come there. (laughs) Well, you know, you talked about in your old apartment, it was crowded, you were distracted by that with stuff, you were distracted by that. In the new apartment, you're thinking, how do I make this into a home? And it's so easy for writers to find uh, distractions. Yeah, yeah. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, residencies are a thing. And I miss residencies, but I don't, I don't know. I'm just feeling, I don't know. We'll see if I apply to them. That's time to residencies are that application is ridiculous like why do you deserve the time and then goes to a committee and i was like you know just give it to me i'm tired (laughs) that was tired that's what needs to to go on your next application just give it to me i am tired do you know how many jobs i have just give me the time give me two weeks feed me let's go You know, it's true. I usually say to folks who are applying to things, well, at the very least, what happens is it helps you to clarify your writing project for yourself. Even applying to something can be helpful to you as a writer to think through what you're doing and to to get some focus for yourself. But sometimes, sometimes you are just tired and you just need a break. Literally. And I understand, especially when parents need that, you know, there were several who, who was it? A good friend she was dealing with her two children and one is uh, disabled. And so she, she was just, I've never had to deal with my children and work a job full time at the same time with no break right? for how long? 
I can't even, I don't even know what time is anymore. And so she ended up doing a DIY residency. She rented a house with some friends and stuff like that. Which I totally understood, but I was like, give her, I was like, someone just give her a residency. (laughs) She's dealing with two kids and she loves her kids and I met her kids. They're great kids. But yeah, I don't know what that's like to be a parent and work full time and deal with your kids full time and, and be worried about the state of the world and everyone's health and then try to write on top of that. Come on. That's a big ask. I appreciate as a parent, I appreciate that. As a, as a member of the writing community, I appreciate you saying that there are a lot of parents out there. And I just want to put a plug in for these residencies, by the way, uh, not a plug, a request for residencies who say we have a special residency that's for parents. And I'm like, great. Can I bring my kids? Because who's going to watch the kids? Where are the mm-hmm. kids going? Like we need mm-hmm. more, we need more inclusive, not just for parents, but there's all kinds of situations like this, like how... Yeah. What, what are the different kinds of things that you need set up in your life so that you can disappear from it for two weeks? What? I don't know, you know? Or even a residency that offers childcare. That may be going way like left or whatever you want to say. Um, but I really feel as though that would be a great thing for not just can I bring my kids? Can I bring my kids and can you give me four, five, six hours of childcare? That is actually good childcare. You know what I mean? Like approved, yes. safe, all that stuff. I don't know if that's even possible in COVID times, but yeah. that seems to be, you know, logistically, it doesn't seem like it would be hard financially, I understand, but this is something that people need. These are these are, this is the reality. It's like it needs to be accessible for disabled people. It it needs to be understanding of people's financial limitations. It needs to be understand that like being whether you're a single parent or you're co-parenting that it is not easy to be away from your children for a specific amount of time and then go across the country or go wherever. So I just think there is kind of a single-mindedness especially in residencies that for me a single woman Right. It's too okay. Cool. Bye. <laughs> right. Right. And it's it's easy to say like, okay, we're doing this thing for this this writer in this kind of category. We're doing this thing, but then you have to actually think through well, what is that writer going to need exactly? Exactly. Because it's not just a residency with a title on it that's for a certain kind of thing. Yeah. I will say that I I know friends have gone to, I think, um, McDowell. Uh, not McDowell. I think there's a place called Writer Farm or something oh, okay. that actually offers a situation where you bring your kids with you and the kids are learning things on the farm and watched by people while you write. Oh, wow. Which is like heaven. Sounds like heaven. And I I think there needs to be more stuff like that or maybe even just programs to apply for babysitter money. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And what I mean, there's all these grants and they say you can do whatever you want with these, this money as a creator, right? Um, mm-hmm. NIFA and NEA and da, 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 da. And they're like, do what you want with the money, take the money by. Uh, but yeah, I just think there's just something that a lot of places are missing and we're kind of looking. And then again, this is all due to the podcast because meeting more people from more perspectives, you understand how limited your viewpoint is. And I say this for everybody, because I really do feel like we're all limited in our viewpoints, whether you want to admit it or not. And I didn't necessarily think that. I didn't think as a black, cishet, able-bodied woman who didn't even think about being heterosexual, who never thought about being cisgender, who never thought about being able-bodied, you know, just 
understanding my blackness, but not seeing that as like a sole form of oppression for me throughout life, because I've been able to move through life, I have had privilege. Uh, but I had to also have conversations with more people to understand that I do have that, because it was kind of a stasis moment of, it's not that I don't recognize that I'm well off or better off than how I grew up. But at the same time, I'm not really acknowledging that. And I think that's where a lot of us are, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. I don't know. It's, that's yeah. a much larger conversation. But it, it, it really stems to if you are, and you know, you worked in academia, how limiting these conversations can go because people just aren't there yet. Because, again, your community is not broadened. You know, my community was always very BIPOC, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't ethnically limited, but it was larger representations limited. And then it became broader because now I have many more trans friends, many more non-binary friends, many more disabled friends, many more religious minority friends. And, and those are things I just never thought about. Right. And that can right. help you as a leader too. It helps you a lot. It, it's annoying as a leader because when you talk to people and they're like, well, we don't think that's, a or no one meant to do that, or no one's trying to cause harm. And I said, that's not a bitch out. I didn't say that. I said, we need to be considerate of da 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 yeah. you're not ready to have that conversation so right Ooh, people fun. people definitely come in at 100% myself as well with our own presumptions and our worldviews that are formed in ways that we can't even see mm -hmm. from inside of ourselves mm -hmm. and so i just i i it is a much bigger conversation but i'm very thankful that we're ending on this note of the importance of having conversations real conversations mm -hmm with as many people as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and I really want to thank you, Jen Baker, for having this conversation with me today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thanks, Catherine. It's always fun to talk to you. Queens. Gotta give a queens, shout out to yay, Queens. queens. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jen. Dear friends, that is the end of our episode of Cabana Chats with Jennifer Baker. You can find out more about Jen by visiting her website, jennifernbaker.com. If you'd like to learn more about the resort, please visit our website, theresortlic.com, or consider joining our free writing community online. You can go to community dot the resort dot com and check out all of the great resources and community we have for writers there. Our podcast editor is Craig Ely and our music is by Pat Irwin. I'm your host, Catherine Lasoda. I look forward to seeing you next time in the cabana.